I have a kid who uh, likes music. Uh, he loves music. He feels music. Uh, he's very similar to me in that any time there's a groove beat, he fills it with me, and we just kind of like are in sync, you know? Not bye-bye-bye, but we are together in sync on how we're feeling this music. And uh, I, I was thinking about how we talk about those things, how he talks about those things. Uh, uh, usually I give them a, tr a song of their choice leading to the baseball fields. Every time we're going, hey, it's your, you're playing first. What, what do you want to listen to? And they'll talk about, I like this, I love this, this is great. I talk about different genres, and, uh, and I love it. But, but I, <laughs> I was thinking this week of, of how we use that term, and, and it's, it's a bit overused at this point, but even this whole trope is a bit overused. But we talk about people like this too, like I love people, but then sometimes we feel the necessity to say, and I like you. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I love you, and also I like you. Like, wait, I, like, I, don't, I don't do that with anything else. I'm never talking to Blake, and I'm like, dude, do you love this dance beat? And he's like, yeah, I don't really like it, though. I'm like, what? What do you mean? That's what we're talking about, right? The thing that you love, you enjoy. But, but with people, we, we feel the necessity to, like, add that of, like, I love you, meaning maybe I'm really, I'm, I, you know, this bond is real. And I'll sacrifice for you when I really have to. <laughs> but I don't like you. I don't like being around you. I would prefer not to see you most of my life, but I love you. Like, whoa, how do we get to this point? And what I want this morning is really just to confront you with that kind of bizarreness, but really just to ask you that question, try to line this of, do you like God? Well, we've talked about love, but based on how we talk about love with other people, let me come back to how we talk about with other people. Do you like him? Do you enjoy him? And so we're picking up Psalms and some Proverbs this summer. Till we walk through a book of the Bible, we're just picking up Psalms. We're in Psalm 16. I want you to see it, but what I want you to think about, especially as we go through the Psalms, is what does the psalmist pray? What does the psalmist love? Because these, this isn't poetry for me to dissect. This is poetry to form our hearts. Do you hear me? So I, maybe your expectation is I'm going to like break this down for you and teach. That's not how psalms are supposed to be consumed. <laughs> They're supposed to be enjoyed as poetry and then returned back to God as praise. And so... I don't really want to dissect this. I want this to form you. I, I want what the psalmist prays to become our prayers. I want what the psalmist loves to become our loves. And in meditating and praying this psalm, that's, that's what it does. It leads us to pray like the psalmist and love like the psalmist. And so I'm not here to command you this morning. You, you don't need to command children to eat ice cream. You give them permission I'm here to give you permission to enjoy God. I don't need to command you to. I'm telling you, he's amazing and terrifically wonderful. You have all the permission to enjoy him to the fullest. Go wild, pig out, it won't make you sick. Like, I know it's, it's bizarre, right? Because everything else in our life that we would give ourselves wholly and devotedly to ends up, over time, destroying us, ruining us, wrecking us. 
Think about addictions, quickest, right? Consumes, all consuming. Was good, was good, would good. Now it has destroyed our lives. That's what any God that's not Yahweh, the God of the Bible, that's what it does. And so you don't need someone to command you. You need someone to say, hey, you can do this. You're permitted. You're permitted to go for it. The, 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 the fridge is unlocked. Get that ice cream and go wild. So Psalm 16, verse 1, is around page 400 in the Pew Bible, if you need one. I just want you to see it with me if you can. Psalm 16. Verse 1, protect me. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. Hey, Jeff, I'm still getting a little feedback right here to me. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Verse 5, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. And with this very Old Testament language about the promised land, verse 6, he speaks, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So it's an ask, it's a petition, it's a request for protection. We don't know necessarily why it could be his enemies. Uh, this could be around the time that, that Saul is trying to chase down and kill him. It could also maybe be his sickness, like he's sick, and so he's asking for protection from sickness but he's requesting from the Lord. He says, my Lord, you should know that means my master or ruler. And then he says, I have nothing good besides you. So he's saying that the sovereign God is my good. Meaning, the sovereign God is my reason for existence and joy. He is my good. With verse 2, if, if it's hard to kind of make sense of that, Psalm 23, 25 says it again a different way. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. So you, you get the poetry, you get the, the exaggerated like, there's nothing else, but you got to see that that's what his ultimate affections are for. Like the theme of this psalm is... A few things going on, but it's all about this God-centered affections from the psalmist, from David to the Lord. I desire nothing on earth but you. It, it should remind you of Moses back to those, the promised land of, of God saying, but you're not going to go. I mean, you, you can go, but not with, not with me. I'm going to stay here. And if you think about a people that were slaves with no land, no rights, really no personal dignity, and then now they're wanderers, and before them is rights, their own land, 
their own property, their own place, their own like safety, their own, their own like little refuge where the enemies won't come and, and get them anymore, where, where they won't be turned again into slaves to Egypt. And, and not only is it a, like your own land, it's also flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's a fertile land. Like there's all the resources you want. And God says, yeah, go, go there but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses replies this, like, who, who do I have in heaven but you? Who, who would we be if you weren't with us? Like, what would this all be about if we get all the good stuff but don't have you? That's what we want. We want you. So like Moses, David desires God. He treasures God. God is his favorite person, if I could say it that way likes him. He enjoys him. And I want to make that distinction because taking refuge without loving is using. Taking refuge in God without loving God is using God. If God is not your treasure, then you're using him for his stuff, for the benefits of having him around. But he's not He's not the weird kid in your friend group that has the pool. They're like, ah, I like this kid, but he has a pool. I'm going to use him for his pool. We're going to keep him around for his pool. God is not that kid. He's not here like, hey, just enjoy all my stuff, but you don't really need me, right? I'm going to go inside and, and have a sandwich. You guys enjoy your No, no. Like, this is not about his gifts. It's about him. Now, there's so many benefits of being around King Jesus. There's so many benefits of being friends with King Jesus. There's so many benefits of being united to Jesus, but all of it is ultimately about King Jesus. Getting him, not his stuff. And if you're going to him mainly for protection without enjoying him, then you're using him. That's not love. That's not delight. That's not enjoyment. The crazy thing in that metaphor is he's the pool. He's the treasure. He's good enough to enjoy. You think his stuff is amazing, but he's so much better. In, in, in kind of line of the Proverbs, I would say that a loyal, present friend is better than all riches. And who is a loyal, present friend other than the Lord? Refuge. Master. Now, when you think about that, verse 1, refuge, and then verse 2, master, we, we use similar things from Acts, from our own language. We talk about him being our Savior. We sometimes talk about, hey, have you, have you trust him as your Savior, but you haven't submitted to him as your Lord? Like, that's just, we talk about that. I'll say, yes, Jesus is Savior. Yes, Jesus is Lord. But can I add, a, a, can we make this, the tripod, let it actually be able to stand on something. He's Savior, Lord, and treasure. He's all of it. To see him only as Savior and not to enjoy him is again to use him. To run to him as your Lord only for times of refuge, only when times when like you're broken, you really need to get out, you're using him. It's a big difference. I've said it before. I'll say it again. There's a big difference between finding God useful and finding God beautiful. 
you can have a utilitarian relationship with the Lord or you can have a romantic love fest. And the Bible is after this. The Bible is after this relationship with you, the Lord. The Bible is after your heart. The Bible is after saying, hey, th there's so many good gifts on this earth, but all of it is to lead you to taste and see that the Lord is your ultimate good. More on that later. As David is beholding God, he then looks around and he sees the people around him in the land. And I love he, what he says there. They're the noble ones there. All of his delight is in them. One author says, delight in God also finds expression in a joyful acceptance of the saints. I love that because it's true. It doesn't bifurcate. Those aren't two separate things. When you delight in God, it then continues and flows into delighting into his people. God likes God's people. Do you? I'm telling you, the Psalms are about forming your heart to love what the Lord loves, to see what the Lord sees, to ask from him what you should be asking. And I think since I was a teenager, it's been trendy to love Jesus and not the church. Trendy in like a Christian subculture way. <laughs> not trending. And I know we're a busted group. I know I've failed you a lot. I've sinned against you directly many times but God really likes his people I know you're coming from previous churches and a full cultural undercurrent of rebellious punk rock like forget authority I get it but God likes his people To treasure him, to delight in him, is then to see what has he done in the people around you? Who has he made them? Do you view them as fellow royal sons and daughters? Do you view them with that sense of dignity? Do you delight in them? I think we're better off in Ephesians, right? bear with one another. We're like, well, I can get maybe my arms around that. Bear with and delight in one another. Eesh. <laughs> I'll just let that hang. The sovereign Lord is your good. He says, your portion of cup, that means that God is a sustainer, is the one that provides for you, is the one that is there for you, is the one that continues to give to you, the one who is terrifically good to you. Now, this isn't relative. Yahweh is not another option. He's head and shoulders above all the other options. He's better than the other gods. He says, the psalmist says, to take or hasten to other gods will multiply your sorrows. So to run to other gods 
whatever it may be, other than Yahweh, other than the God of the Bible, is to multiply sorrows. Why? One book and one sentence, G.K. Bill answers, you become what you worship to your own ruin or restoration. That's why. If you worship a God who promises all this fulfillness, but always delivers empty, it'll wreck you. It'll multiply your sorrows. Today, I'm not really concerned with anyone leaving here and going home or somewhere else and like going to Asherah pole and lighting incense to a God like that. But (laughs) I am concerned about the idols in our hearts. That's what Ezekiel 14, 3, that's how it puts it. It says the the idols in our hearts. So so this, this isn't, we're not free because we, live in the West, and we're away from outward, expressive paganism. <laughs> that, w- that There's no chance for us to worship a counterfeit God because we live in it. It's not, it's not overt. It's actually maybe difficult here because it's so subtle. Because the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, and even family, and turn them into ultimate things. And so then our hearts, what, they deify those things. They become the center of our lives because they, as we think, they can give us that, that safety and security, that fulfillment, that significance. Now, typically, in David's time, people asked gods for for provision, for protection. And those are very overt. Like I said, other gods that you can go see and go visit and go talk to and, and pour out blood of, of any animal for that. As he's talking about the libations of blood. He's like pouring out offerings to another god. But what happens when you live in a culture with abundance? It's not overt for us to run around going asking <laughs> other gods than Yahweh, other than Jesus, for, for money and wealth and protection, right? What happens in that is that we don't run to other gods like that. We then turn those good things, the abundance, the wealth, the security we have into idols themselves and worship them. When you live in abundance, it's very easy to worship money and security and not the Lord. And that's what he's saying. If that's you, your sorrows will multiply. Tim Keller defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So what I'm saying is you should stop thinking about uh, this life in terms of just what you're doing or not doing. It's about your loves. It's about your worship. And so we can turn anything into an idol. John Calvin said that, that our hearts are like perpetual idol factories, pumping them out. We got one, we saw it, we turned from it, and then we're ready to 
pump out another one. You were created worshiping, and so your heart is longing to worship. Longing to give yourself over to something. Your heart is pumping out joy and delight. The, cl- the question really is, where is it focused? Where is it going? Where is it running to? And so to be honest or to, to be direct is to say, uh, don't turn from Asherah. Don't turn from Marmaduke. Don't turn from the, that's a cartoon character. That's also an old god, just so you know. Um, <laughs> you don't have to turn from cartoons or dogs. But turn from this and turn to the Lord. Well, then what would it be for us? Well, it's money, sex, power, control, our career, even as I said earlier, even our family. When you take God out of the picture, you have to fill it with something. And you can just look at an obvious example from the recent years on how many shows have been made about the family. And over time, if not from the beginning, what does it do? It deifies the family because they've removed God from the story. So something has to be deified and be set as ultimate. So we take good things like family and no longer see them as good gifts from the Lord and worship the Lord. No, we turn to them and worship them. That's what he's saying is an idol. And so think about this. Think about power. Think about approval. Think about control. Think about comfort. These are our typical idols. And so I want you to see, is it already there? I want you to see just who God is in response to this. So that rather this morning than worshiping power, approval, or security, you you would enjoy God. This is four G's from You Can Change by Tim Chester. He says, God is glorious, so I don't have to produce results. Rather than bowing to power, rather than seeing as the ultimate thing that you have to go get, you can rest that God is glorious. What about approval? Always fearing what people think of you, walking away from conversations, rolling it all through your mind again to see, did I say weird things? Did I say wrong things? How do they think about me? rather than worshiping that and multiplying your sorrows. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. In Christ, I've been accepted. I don't have to live for the fleeting notion of someone else's acceptance. I have the Father's. Does that make me mean and rude to other people? Of course not. It only makes me more loving because I'm, I'm actually content, secure, as in opposed to insecure. What about control? Maybe thinking about the future, worried about what might happen, feel a bit frenetic, anxious when maybe you're not the one leading, you're not the one doing the thing, and you just have to kind of sit and watch, and you're like, God is great. You don't have to be in control. I told you when you remove God from the story, even your story, It's a vacuum that will be filled by something, and that can often be ourselves. Meaning, I have to be great. I have to be in control. I have to have all this nailed down. I have to have a good plan for the future. I must execute this, 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 this. But rather than multiplying your sorrows by going after God, remember, enjoy. God is great. 
And what about comfort? I think this is a little bit of what I was speaking, not a little bit, this is exactly what I was speaking about earlier, about abundance. There are, oh yeah, there's stores, just called convenience stores. I don't know if anyone calls them that anymore. Convenience, just here's a store of comfort from your house to the place you're going. And if you're gonna go back home, you can also stop and get whatever items of comfort you please before you go home to a pantry full of comfortable pleasures. But they're not my good. They're not your good. The sovereign Lord is your good. So God is good. I don't have to look elsewhere for comfort, peace, and fulfillment. That's who he is. So enjoy him. Delight in him. Or as the psalmist continues, bless him. That's verse 7. That's praise him because who he is. And so verse 7, I'll bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when I thoughts trouble me. Now, I said this could be protection from his enemies. It could be protection from sickness. Maybe Saul trying to kill him. But consider what he's thinking in this cave. If it is Saul out trying to kill him, he's most likely in a cave lying on a hard ground, not being able to sleep. Why? Because Saul's trying to kill him. And so he's wrestling with this. Think about this. Going to Lord crying out to God in the middle of the night, which I assume... At that time, he's got a few buddies around. I assume it's like the Garden of Gethsemane. David's crying, asking God for protection, and all of his buddies are asleep. But God counsels him, gives him wisdom, shows him the wise path to take. Verse 8, I will always let the Lord guide me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My body, my body also rests securely. Heart is glad, whole being rejoices, body rests securely. I can't tell you that's exactly what's happening, that he's in the cave, but I, I think so. And I just want you to, do you sense that? being on the lamb, being on the run, running away from the person that's the most powerful person in your country trying to kill you. All the thoughts, all the questions, all the concerns, all the anxieties. But because you guide me, you counsel me, because you're at my right hand, I'll not be shaken, so my heart's glad. My heart's glad. My whole being rejoices, and my body rests securely. This is, a, this is juxtaposed with Psalm, what is it, 127, that says that you shouldn't be up all night restlessness because you're worrying. That, that's more that control, like you're trying to take control, figure it out, manhandle this situation yourself. So it's not that, it's saying, hey, there's a real trouble here. Who's going to protect you? Who are you going to go to for counsel? Who are you going to go to for wisdom? Who's going to guide you? 
Paul once described himself kind of this same situation as having nothing and yet possessing everything. That's 2 Corinthians 6.10. But a few, la- a few lines later in 7.4, he adds, In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. How can you have nothing and possess everything? How can we have troubles and boundless joy? It's faith. It's faith that looks beyond the circumstances and looks to our relationship with God. That's what it is. Is that, yeah, you have nothing, but you have the Lord. You have everything. Yes, there's real troubles, but the Lord is with you, will hold you, will not abandon you to Sheol like we see in verse 10 will be with you now and to the end. See, trust him. Trust in his goodness. To see him by faith for who he is, to like him. Maybe you're all filled up with joy, all joyed up, but maybe some of you are like me and want more of God, want more joy. Then, or maybe just apathetic, a bit numb to all of this, meaning to the Lord. Then let's, let's be honest, maybe have a diagnostic of like, where am I, what's missing here? What's going on here? Here's what joy in God doesn't look like. Tim Chester paints it this way. You often succumb to temptation. Suffering and loss fill you with fear. Your service feels like drudgery. It feels like a burden. It feels like the bane of your existence. Your witness feels like duty. And your sacrifices feel like sacrifices. If, if any one of these are true, then, then, then it's like you're not finding joy in God as you could. So the, the psalmist's prayer is to be your prayer and then to be your heart. Because when you enjoy God, you're saying, God's my treasure. I'm not going to give in to this lesser joy, this sin. When I enjoy God, then I'm going to know that he's with me and he's present. I'm going to trust that he's with me even in suffering. And so I have, I have nothing. Maybe I'm losing everything, but I also have everything in the Lord. I'm going to see this by faith. For you will not abandon me to Sheol, verse 10. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. And so I think about this as the psalmist walking in front of us and we're following him. And we're following him to trust God to save you, to protect you, that refuge. But also to submit to God as your Lord. But then also cherish him as your treasure. The nature of life with God, he says, begins with God revealing. God reveals himself to you. The goal of this life with God is his presence. 
even to be at his right hand, right? Which would make sense. We could maybe give our brothers, the disciples, a benefit of doubt when they're asking Jesus to be at his right hand. But that time Jesus said, you don't, you don't really know what you're asking because there's, there's suffering before there's joy. But the joys and eternal pleasures are the effect of this life with God, that he's revealed himself to you, he's pulled you into it. The goal of this life for you is, is his presence with you, and then what does it bear fruit? It bears joys and pleasures. Actually, in the original language, the, the words are just translated literally happy things and pleasant things. And it's plural. In your translation, it may say joy. No, it's joys and eternal pleasures, happy things, and pleasant things. Jesus addressed this, this idea of treasure, of treasuring him above everything else, but with a story. And he tells a story to answer this. of like, what are you to love? What are you to treasure? What are you to hold above all else? And he says, well, man gave a banquet, and he, he invited all his friends to come to this great feast. And three of them gave a reasons why they can't come. I got this ox, I got this family, I got this sheep, I got this problem, so I can't come, right? They, know, they say no to his invitation. And the, the master is angered, saddened, but then this this turns from that to then it turns like this great commission. He just calls everyone in. All right, then just go out. Shake the trees. Find someone in the tree, in the bushes, whoever, the highways. This is not reputable people. He didn't say, hey, go to the library. F find the people with the, the nice clothes, and they're kind of quiet. They understand how to respect a space. You know, they're at the library. No, he says like, Shake the bushes, the roads, the wanderers, the left outs, the marginalized, and bring them in. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. But for those who would not treasure the master, judgment falls. I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So real estate, possessions, family, to prefer any of those over Christ makes him angry. It's an affront to him. And it, it destroys us because we're worshiping something that's not him that's going to be to our own ruin or restoration. If it's not him, it's our ruin. But then he welcomes us in, all those that would not treasure him, and says, treasure him. Come to the banquet. Not, not because you're reputable, not because you had your act together, not because you're clean, and he's like, hey, these people will get it. No. What he says is the, the people that have forgiven much love much. The people that have been saved from much love much. Go get whoever. Get anyone. And let them treasure me above everything else. John Piper says it this way, embracing Jesus as one among many useful treasures is worse than useless. 
It's worse because it gives the impression that he is willing to be used. He is not. He will be received as our supreme treasure or not at all. So the theme of this book is the affections of the psalmist for the Lord, but how it plays out is, Sovereign Lord, you are my good, so I'll trust you. I'll delight in you, and I'll rest in you. That's what I'll do. But at some point, you're going to object and be like, but how do I know he's good to me? Psalm 16 is not it. (laughs) Peter picks up it and continues the story. In Acts 2, Peter looks at Psalm 16 as he's telling people about Jesus, and he says, Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He says, Jesus was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The Father did not abandon Jesus, the shield, did not leave him in the grave, but rose him on the third day and then set him at his right hand. If he didn't abandon Jesus, he's not going to abandon you. And by his resurrection, Jesus then secures and then gifts you his presence, his spirit, so that you would know at night when it's terrible, he guides me. He, He gives me wisdom. He leads me. That he's my joy. Why? because of who he is. I don't want to say anything else because I don't want you to enjoy God for his stuff. I want you to enjoy God for his sake. To enjoy God for God. Which means you should have that imagery of beholding the Father and thinking at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you shouldn't think of any like Roman kingdom. You shouldn't think of like grapes and palm leaves. Like, hey, he's just laid all this like goodies for you. He's got a swag bag for you at his right hand. At the right hand of the Father is Jesus. He, the person of Jesus, is eternal pleasures. He is your joy. That's what the psalmist wants for us. That we would like what God likes, that we would enjoy God. Let's pray. Father, I I ask that you would gently and graciously turn us to delight in you, to treasure you. If that means de-seeding the thing in our hearts that we've 
enjoyed more than you, that has captured our imagination, that has overtaken our, our thoughts and our habits, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us and remind us that you are a treasure, you are our good, you are our inheritance, you are our hope. that you give such sweet gifts, but what is best is that you've given us yourself. And so I, I pray for more joy in this room, more delight, more permission to look you, look at you and see your manifold perfections, your glorious beauty, to feast on you like that banquet like the wedding supper of the lamb that's coming may we pour out our affections on you our delight because you are worthy of it you have not you will not abandon us to our own devices to the grave even chasing after other gods when we're running away from you you don't look disappointedly from a distance you come after us pursue us we do that this morning Lord in Christ's name Amen